Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. The purpose of these talks is to create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. Today, I talk with one of the brightest lights I know, Los Angeles-based marketing guru, professional singer, and self-proclaimed dog breed geek, Anise Goff. Our wide-ranging discussion unfolds with the importance of story, her beginnings as a talented, music-loving kid in St. Louis, Missouri, her formative years as a singer, discovering her marketing talents, living in New York, and life as a professional vocalist. We also get into the perils of social media, the division in today's American politics, and hopes for the future. Enjoy. Here's me and Denise. Live, live with Anise White Goff. How are you, my dear? Thank you. For I am well. How are you? I am fantastic. Um, so, as I was saying, this whole podcast business, conversations from here, is about inspiring people with stories of of how people got to where they are hmm. today and all that kind of stuff. So, because we're in a time where people are having the time, many of us, to, and I see this as a good thing, to remake and retool and recalibrate and maybe go off into a different direction. So um, how has this been for you? It's actually been a good time overall. Um, to that point, it, I've been doing a lot of like spiritual work around, um, at one point I was working with a good friend who's a life coach and she kind of helped me if you will connect with my younger self to understand how some of the things that I was doing were impacted by that piece of me and, and, or should I say disconnect my disconnection from that. And then I've also been working with a story coach who's another good friend of mine and he kind of helps you to tap into your own personal stories and then shows you how to kind of take that out into the world, especially for me right now, as I'm looking for a new job. Right. And so this concept of story has been like at the top of mind, especially for me um, as of recently. You know, it's interesting because we, we are living our own narrative. Mm -hmm. we, we tell ourselves the story. We, we, uh, we see ourselves. It's, it's, uh, we, we have this perception of ourselves in the world, who we are and what we do. And when things are taken away, like a job um, or uh, given the lockdown, life is very different and so um we're telling us and we're hearing other stories mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and the stories of polarization and division and derision and all of this stuff and so to be able to 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 turn inward and work on our own story um is so important because of, i mean our life is a story right? absolutely absolutely everything and that for me, you know, like I know my stories, but I think not necessarily knowing how they funnel into the space of the professional, like, you know, usually, you know, keep your personal and your professional separate. And so being able to take the stories and for example, I tell the story now when people ask me about my background in marketing, I use the story of how I actually started in marketing, which was by marketing myself as a professional mm -hmm. singer. Mm -hmm. And so the story is that, you know, I had a management company that came to me with my bio on a sheet of white paper and the uh, press kit at the time was in a red glossy folder. And I remember looking at my manager going, what is this? And he was like, well, this is what everybody's using. And I was like, no, I don't want you to use what everyone else is using, because if that is the case, they're going to put it in a pile and never look at it. So then he was like, well, if you think you can come up with something better, I was like, I will. And so I went to the paper store. It was this amazing paper store in New York called Paper Access. And it's literally a block long, it's huge. And I was there for like two hours and I touched papers and just, just feeling the samples and what, and deciding on who I wanted to be presented as, as a brand. Mm -hmm. So once I did the package, 
we went to this record label and the deal didn't end up working, but the owner of the label was like, who did your press kit? I was like, I did actually. And he was like, oh, can you do this for my other artists? And so that's where I actually started marketing. And so I started to understand that that story is important because marketing for me is an authentic thing. And I understand the importance of marketing myself because that was where I started. And so now I weave that into my conversation when I'm talking to someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when, just to go to, to, to sort of seg backwards a little bit, your origin story, where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. That's right. That's right. A Midwesterner. I was a Midwesterner and then spent a long time in New York. I like to say I quote unquote grew up in New York Mm -hmm. um, and then moved to California like six years ago. And was it, was it in New York that you started singing? No, actually I started um, professionally singing when I was eight years old. Um, I started with a vocal coach and I started training in, um, opera so I was singing arias at eight years old wow and they would you know essentially put me up on the top of a table and go okay it's time to perform (laughs) and so that's actually where I I started singing I think my first official audition was when I was like 13 and I had to audition for this prestigious um it might even been 12 12 or 13 I auditioned for this prestigious um vocal chorus in St. Louis called the Young Catholic Musicians and it was a 50-piece orchestra and then also 50-piece vocalist but you were only between the ages of like 12 and 18 or 12 and 16 Mm -hmm. and we would perform all around the city and so like that first audition the um the leader it was like I don't know there might have been like five or six of us in the room and he's like you 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 sing this okay thank you very much you can leave you 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 sing this you and you, you can leave. You sing this. I sang whatever it was. He was like, okay, you got it. And that was my first audition. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I continued doing that. But yeah, I started when I was eight years old. I've uh, singing his, my mother would tell you that I actually started singing before I could talk. I was going to say you were one of those little kids who just, just let it fly. And your parents are like, what is, what is this? <laughs> Well, it's funny, and I—it's I, I, funny because again, to that story aspect, one of the things I learned from my mom is to see people as their individual selves and then help them flourish. So she was good with seeing who my sister was, seeing who I was, what interested us, and then playing to those strengths. And singing for me was that thing. My sister, she was great at debating. She loved to talk, so my mom put her in journalism programs. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now that's such a gift because not all parents, as we know, are able to do that, are able to see the unique gifts of their kids. I mean, I grew up in a similar way and uh, my parents were treated my brother and myself very differently because we were very, very different people kind of, you know, had the fundamental, Mm -hmm. fundamentally the same values, et cetera, but we're very different people and expressed ourselves very differently. So Mm -hmm. you were also very fortunate in that way and that you must have loved to sing, obviously, because you know, it must have been your thing. It was a part of me. My grandmother, will, she tells the story of me. I, I was talking and barely walking. I must have been three, maybe four years old. She was like, you disappeared. We couldn't find you. And then she said, we're walking through the store trying to find you, and we hear this sound, and it is you standing up on a platform singing into your bottle. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when I say it is literally just yeah. in me, it's part of me. It, yeah, 100%. You were meant. So then you get into this prestigious, this prestigious choir mm-hmm. at, at 12, 13. And then what happens? And then I was still performing and doing, you know, like high school musicals, that kind of thing. Um, all through high school. And then when it was time to go to college, I remember my dad going, what college are you going to? What is your major going to be? And music is not an option. Oh, wow. And I was like, (laughs) at the time, I didn't understand it. And I think had he said like a couple of lines more like music's not an option because it's a very hard business. I want you to have something that you can fall back on. Um, I could have heard that. Um, 
and and in hindsight now i am glad that i didn't necessarily major in music i marketing is something that also comes naturally for me and what i realize is if i don't understand the business aspect of the industry then it's it's hard to have a long-term career in music it just is so then what did you end up majoring in <laughs> biochemistry oh right because music and marketing <laughs> yeah biochemistry i was really good at math and science they came easy to me and so i thought well maybe i'll be an anesthesiologist that's what i'll do i wasn't passionate about it but i knew how to do it and i'm like yeah i can make money okay let's go do that that's fine well and, and then i hated it every second of it you hated it well and and because somebody like you i would imagine is probably like once you set your mind to do something like you're going to be good at it but yeah when you recognize that you hated it and that you didn't find yourself in it you didn't see yourself in it what i struggled you know i think high school you know grade school high school i knew i needed to do it to get the grade to graduate when you get to the college level and it's like oh but this is going to be what the rest of your life is but you're not passionate about it it makes it so much harder and i think that's why i struggled with it as long as i did and so i i took some time off i was like look mom i'll go back to school but i need to figure out what it is that i want to be doing because this is not it okay and so in during your so during your college years you actually took some time away to, yeah. to figure out re recalibrate so did you end up with that same major or did you did you change it i changed it and i ended up getting a degree in business administration and marketing mm -hmm. there you go and it was easy it was so easy <laughs> once i had got my head there but it took me some time because nobody had ever talked to me about marketing so it wasn't something you know like my dad he worked for the government his entire career so it wasn't like i had somebody that i knew was in marketing or even had any concept of it once i kind of fell into it it organically i guess if you will i was like oh i could do this this is fun mm -hmm. wow and then it's one of those revelations where sorry i have an ice cube in my mouth <laughs> it's one of those revelations it's hot um it's one of those revelations when you discover that something in business can be fun and creative yes. you know so you can express that that part of yourself that you can be creative within the business realm and it's also what i've also kind of come to understand i think part of the reason i was good at science and math in addition to being creative is because my parents really did kind of um, foster i guess that's the word foster me using both sides of my brain mm -hmm. i grew up with two type a personality parents and i was a dreamer and so they never tamped my capacity to be a dreamer or to be creative but they also kind of like worked on that left side to get me to think you know to have a thought process to go through you know and to be able to kind of go logically and analytically as well as creatively mm -hmm. that's really again may i say again how extraordinary that is that they were that mindful about how they raised the kids i mean that's such a gift and here you are <coughs> you know and like, here i am and it's funny because i never thought about it like i remember when we were kids if we got in trouble like we didn't get spankings it was go in your room think about why you've done what you've done now come back out and have a conversation with us and so it started to train my brain because my dad was always like you've got to understand risk and reward for everything that you think you're going to gain you've got to decide if what you're going to lose is worth it because you'll always lose something and so it started to train my brain to think in a more analytical way that I don't know that I would have automatically done. Right. Renaissance parents. Yeah. They, my mom always says, she was like, look, that was nothing but God because I had no frame of reference. I didn't uh -huh. have that. She was like, I just knew that I wanted you guys to be the best versions of yourselves that you could be. Yeah. And so what about what, what role did music and singing uh, what role did it play through your college years? Did you have any time to pursue it at all? No, I mean, I did like talent shows here and there in college, um, but I didn't really, I didn't actively pursue it. I would honestly say as a profession and being a professional singer, I didn't really pursue it until I moved to New York. And then it was like, 
the night I moved to New York, I wrote my first song. The next night I got my first background gig and everything just started rolling from there. How old were you when that was happening? 26. 26. And then-, then Only five years ago, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not a, not a day over 72 was Brenda. Right. <laughs> But but then and then so so you had to go as a as a professional singer mm -hmm. for some years. Yes, I spent many years, and I it was interesting because I spent many years straddling professional like corporate career and being a professional singer, and so it was always the running joke with my friends. They're like, "Yes, I'm gonna just try and get on your schedule in about a month and a half," because I was you know working full time during the day. Then I would go to the studio at night. Then I would do gigs on the weekends or door like I was constantly working you're not driven at all <laughs> <laughs> but you know it was one of those things i think a youth that that's one part but b when you're doing something that you love you find energy reserves and i think that was the thing and i understood what my daytime job was and what it what the meaning was for it and i also had an environment in my corporate life that they knew what i did Mm -hmm. And because I was also good at what I did in the corporate space, they gave me flexibility. So like if I had to go to a rehearsal, if I needed to leave early because I had a gig, I did. And they never complained. That's so great because, you know, some people feel and, and out of necessity, some people have to divorce themselves when they go to work. And that's a very common thing. So yes, we, it is. Absolutely. When, so we, when you're in a situation where you can bring yourself, all of yourself to your work and you do your best work. And then they also know who you are on the side and they support that. And because they, they value diversity of talent, mm -hmm. they value passion and energy. And so they see that and, and a smart employer is going to support that. And I think that was, you know, that's why it was easy. Like, I can be a top performer. What do you need? I will have everything that you need. Ducks crossed. What, you know, everything will be in place as long as you're allowing me to go do what I do. And they were, I remember at that time, they were so supportive. Like, my boss would come to my shows. Like, the office would come out right. as, a, as a collective. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I realized that that was definitely an anomaly. And it was definitely a blessing um, to have that kind of support for what I was doing outside of work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also you feel that, that the people that you're working for, they, you feel that they know you in, in, in a real way. And, yeah, and they got me, they got me. Yeah. And, and again, at the end of the day though, when it came time to, you know, we've got this new project, it was like, you know what, Anise is the one that's gonna handle it. She's got it, she's gonna take care of it and it's gonna be better. So that was kind of the, the way we worked. Mm -hmm. And then what did, did you end up at some point touring? You were going with the series, like you were <laughs> yeah, Germany. Yeah, kind of doing, like I was, you know, the last tour that I did was 2015 um, with this artist named Lunch Money Lewis. Uh -huh. <laughs> and Lunch Money had a hit song called Bills. And we like, we did the Today Show, we did the Tonight Show. We went over to the UK. We did this really cool festival called the V Festival, which I don't think is even in, in happening anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's fun when you're doing that. But then when you come back and you're like, I need to find the next gig. Yeah. And okay, I got to pay my bills. That's when I was like, you know what? I and, and the music industry is a young person's game. And for me, I've been fortunate enough to still look youthful, but there's like a point where you're just like, you know what, I'm too old for this. I'm, I'm not doing this. And, and, and at that point, I'd met my now husband and I was like, I actually like being around him. I don't want to be out on the road. Yeah, yeah. As much, like I just like, I'm actually good to, to hang up my shoes. So now it's like, if I get a call and it's something fun and it makes me happy, then I'm in but I don't have the desire to go chase it anymore. Right, and, and I think that um, especially when, as we mature um, and as we, we also uh, become very clear about what our values are, um, when you meet someone and fall in love and it's the real deal, as it was for you and Mark, mm -hmm. um, 
you make a choice and it's, yeah. no, it's no sacrifice because it's what you want. It's a priority. Your personal life is your priority. Well, and it was, you know, it's funny. I remember one of the last um, travel gigs that I did, me and a buddy of mine were talking and I was like, you know, I'm good with hanging out with my then boyfriend. And she was like, yeah, I kind of want to go back home and see my husband. Like I'm good. And it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't this thing of either or it was right. just this understanding. Like I have been able to do amazing things. I have been able to see amazing places and meet people. And so it wasn't like I was losing something or giving something up or like, um, you know, if I do this, I'll never get the chance again. I've done it. So there's no regret. Yeah. And, 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 and also too, having done all this when you were younger and mm -hmm. had all that excitement and whatever, sometimes it's really nice to settle, to settle in somewhere. Yes, and, it is. You know, and then like you said with, um, you know, you will do, you know, gigs here and there and fun stuff and whatever, and you keep it alive for yourself and you enjoy it, but it's not like, I mean, I can imagine, um, you know, I did stand up for a brief period of time and, and um, to really be successful at that, you, you have to, you have to be on the road. Mm -hmm. like, that's, that's where the money is. And I thought that is the most unappealing that, you know, cause I, <laughs> I, I love being, um, <laughs> love being with my fiance and my cat. And I, you know, I'd much rather do creative things, you know, from here or short term things here or there, but not but not be gone for weeks at a time. That just sounds depressing to me, you know? It's, well, and it's also, you know, people are like, oh, it's so exciting. It's so glamorous. It's like, not necessarily. A, when you do get to whatever city it is that you get to, a lot of times it's either late night or early morning. You get yeah. there, you got enough time to go to bed. You wake up the next morning, you're doing press or whatever you have to do. Then you go back to the room, you do the show, and then you're off to the next thing. Like, there's yeah. not like this oh, I get to see all these cities and enjoy it. It's usually not the case. And so I just see the inside of hotel rooms. You see the inside of hotel rooms. And then, you know, again, it's just like, I want to be in my own bed. <laughs> just relax. Yeah. So I, but again, no complaints. I have been able to do some amazing things. And like I said, meet amazing people. And, you know, like I remember doing this one gig many, many moons ago, um, in Houston, I think it was. And I don't know who these people were, but they rented out the um, Hilton Hotel right by the Astrodome mm -hmm. for 500 of their closest friends and family. So they basically rented out the whole hotel so that everybody could stay there. And they had these rooms that were themed. And so like the um, cocktail hour was the red room. And it was like every red flower within a 2000 mile radius was in this room. Wow. And then you go into the main room, it was all white. And they had like this six foot tall peacock that had, it was completely made of flowers. Wow. And it was the, like the, the tail was cascading down onto the floor. Seriously, one of the most phenomenal things. And, and as someone that does marketing and events, I can tell you that was probably a $10,000 piece. Mm -hmm. Like that, and that was just one. So all that's happening around the room. And at midnight, this crystal like curtain opens and all of a sudden you hear the eagles <laughs> the it's eagles fun. were and we we actually we had opened for frankie valley we yeah. had all yeah and then the eagles come on and you're like who are these people who has this kind of money but there's money out there wow wow and they yeah. got eagles to play the eagles and it was Get all of them together yet again yeah <laughs> oh they came together for this one and i remember talking to the event planner actually and she said i think it was like 1.5 or 1.7 million for the eagles just for wow. the band not for anything else wow hmm some people yeah. have some bucks <laughs> some people have bucks but you know it's like things like that where you're like yeah. you can't really like you you can't really there's no comparison there's no like oh well it's like you've been able to do things like that where you go i've had some pretty cool experiences i've gotten to do some pretty cool things okay mm -hmm. yeah and 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 to to have so did you get to meet the eagles did you yeah they were lovely yeah 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 because we were all performing right. they were lovely and um 
yeah, it was, I, I was just standing there mesmerized and I was like, can I be the guy that does nothing but bring the guitars out? Cause I'm watching him and he just is like waiting in the wings. As soon as this song is ending, he's ready to go transition out the guitar. Yep. Can I get that job? Wow. <laughs> well, and, and, um, and their harmonies are so beautiful. Oh, That's, it was. I hope they did Seven Bridges Road <laughs> when you were, when you were there. Oh my God. We were just, everybody was mesmerized. I think that was the thing. Everybody was just like, wow. Okay. So that just happened. And, and they're icons of the 70s music scene and the LA music scene and um, yeah, really, really remarkable people. And yeah. of course, after, afterwards, um, a after they broke up for the second time or whatever, then of course, Glenn Fry had his solo career and Don mm -hmm. had his and, and um, I think Timothy B. Schmidt went on to his thing and, you know, they, they did their, but yeah. They are, they are iconic. And in fact, I think the Eagles' greatest hits that came out in, um, in the mid-70s is still one of the highest selling albums of all time. Still. Wow. Well, well, they came together for that night because that check was nice. And they, didn't, they, they only played like a 30-minute set. It wasn't even like it was wow. like a two-hour set. Yeah. Wow. And where was this? I mean, like... Oh, it was, in, it was in Houston? It was in Houston. Yeah, this is wow. they rented when they rented out the whole Hilton Hotel. Wow. Incredible. So you, yeah. have, you have experiences like that. Mm -hmm. And then, like, then you're ready to, you know, hang it up and say, wow, that was a nice bow to, to, to tie around this part of my, <laughs> this part of my, my career. So, and then, so then was that one of the last things that you did in terms of no actually the the last the actually the last thing i did was a dance track that got released last year with this um production duo called black caviar and they're out of new york they're touring well they were touring a lot obviously COVID has shut everyone down but they had kind of like built themselves a pretty solid following on the on the um on par with like a Diplo kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. These two guys. So I did a, um, I got to do um, Portishead's um, Give Me a Reason, which I was really happy to do because I love Portishead and I love that song. So we did that one. No, actually that released earlier this year. I'm totally, oh, I just spaced. Yeah, that was January. <laughs> See, I forget. Well, this is what's happening now is that time is, we're, we're in this sort of time morph you know, where, where it either feels like it's racing along or it feels like it's, you know, really slow. I find that it's racing along more than I that. feel like it's racing because I feel like, I mean, we think about just in January, Kobe Bryant died. That seems right. like that was two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, and then, and then the lockdown happened in, in March. March. Yeah. In March. And then since then, things have been weird ever since. But I find that the weeks tend to go really quickly. And, you know, and it doesn't make any sense because you would think that it would be the opposite. You would think that it would, time would slow down, but it hasn't. It hasn't. And it's, um, yeah, I, it's going to be interesting. I think from a marketing standpoint, I'm looking at how do you connect with people at home, make them feel like they're a part of something hmm. and engage. And so it's, it's interesting to see how brands are kind of trying to find these ways, struggling to find these ways. Um, and, and I'm, I'm looking for all of the opportunities in that, that middle space that they're not thinking of. Well, and you also, um, you are in the realm of experiential marketing, right? That's kind of, is, that's kind of your niche. So, yes, um, I, I'm more integrated marketing. And the only reason I kind of like pivot away from saying experiential is because it's become so many things now. Everybody is, oh, you do user experience. I'm like, no, I don't do user experience <laughs> or you know, oh, you, you're, you're an event producer. I'm like, I can produce events, but I am a marketer first. And so when I came into the space of experiential marketing, that was like 12 or 13 years ago. And it, at it's that point, experience the beginnings. And 
at that point, experiential marketing meant every interaction that somebody has with the brand shapes whether or not they're going to buy, whether or not they'll buy again, whether or not they'll tell someone. And so it's not just events. It's literally what is your website looks like, look like and the colors and that. Who are the sales reps and how are they going out and presenting your brand? And like I'm looking at every aspect of it from a, a holistic perspective. And so I kind of shifted more integrated because I do social media marketing. I also do partnership marketing. And so I kind of like pivoted and with the entertain, I mean, the event industry being what it is right now. Yeah. Who knows when that will come back online. Right. And, and I think that's part of the thing that's so freaky about these times is that we don't have a timeline. It's one thing if, mm-hmm. if, you know, if everybody said, Oh, well, you know, next month or, or by September 15th, everything's going to go, everything's going to, going to click back into normal, but, but that is, that is not happening and it's not realistic to, to realistic to expect that. And that's what people find so disturbing is that there's really no end in sight. And then, you know, businesses are going under, especially small businesses. We're losing that. And, uh, and there is no end in sight with this thing. There's no end in sight. And, you know, I, I was impacted by the, um, by COVID because the project that I was working on required us to be in DC and was an actual event. And it was going to, was supposed to be in June. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I am seeing now that people are trying to figure out is, especially in, in like live events and promotional kind of spaces, Insurance companies are not covering COVID. Mm. And so as a result, if you are going to do an event and COVID comes back next year and you've already signed a contract, you're pretty much screwed. So then it becomes hard to say, okay, we're going to start planning to bring events back online because we don't know when this is going to level out. And so it's interesting to see brands are really struggling right now to figure out how to, how to connect with people who are sitting at home. Right. And then the other thing is that because human creatures are social creatures and require connection and physical contact and all of that, um, trying to find meaning and connection in this age where we have to stay six feet away from people, um, you know, theoretically, um, it's, it's really, it's really unhealthy. I mean, that's, there, there are repercussions that have come from, um, from the, the precautions that have been Mm -hmm. taken and that we're struggling with that right now. And And even when things quote unquote level out, I don't think that people are going to just run right back out in mass to go to. So I I was reading an article and it said that the reality is it's probably going to be 2022 before we get to quote unquote normalcy. Yeah. And for people who are performers and, and musicians and singers and actors and all of these people who rely on, yep. On the presence of others um, it's just, it's just destroyed everything. And yeah. So, yeah. Wedding industry. Yeah. The wedding industry. I know. The wedding industry has been crippled because of this. Yeah. I mean, we're, I, I actually, we had, uh, friends asking us the other week, oh, when are you guys going to get married? And it's like, I, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, but we kind of like people to be there, <laughs> you know? So right now there is no plan, you know? So we're, we're living, we are, we are a people without a plan, really. That's most of us in the world, and especially in the United States. Yeah. Um, well, now. as for weddings, I will say, if you can, go to San Francisco City Hall. It's amazing. Well, I used to live in San Francisco. I lived there for almost 19 years. And that's right. And that, that's where you guys thats where you guys got married. That's right? where we got married. I would tell anyone, you know, you... You can either rent out, there's a couple of spaces that you can rent out and have like a completely private ceremony or like we, we got married at the top of the rotunda. It wasn't, there was nobody up there. It was like 180 bucks. Yeah. And you can have, I think like 25 or 30 people 
Huh? there for that I would tell anybody it was there are no bad pictures it was amazing yeah I I, I, I actually you've just given me an idea you know and, and, <laughs> and because I I love that city Brad loves that city and um, you know we are madly in love with San Francisco I mean if we could move there if we had a bunch of money and we could move there tomorrow we would Absolutely. Yeah, we loved it when we were up there. But yeah, again, it's the issue of the money. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I was looking at, um, like, for example, uh, I used to live two blocks up from Haight-Ashbury. And okay. at the time, I lived in this little apartment. I paid a thousand bucks a month because it was rent controlled. So I lived in this beautiful 1908 building on Frederick Street. And, and, uh, and when I moved out, the rent went up to 2,500 for this tiny, tiny jewel box of an apartment, you know? And it's just, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's just not doable anymore. You know? It you was the same thing in New York though. I, my first apartment in New York was a one bedroom. It was the top floor of a brown, the brownstone. Mm -hmm. And it weirdly, because the people across the street had bought the bought a like a plot of empty land and they used it as a parking lot so it was an empty like just space in front of us so I was looking right at the Empire State Building oh and I paid $700 a month oh my god and it wasn't one of those places that you walk in and you turn around and you say where's the apartment? no it was a beautiful <laughs> like it was a full living room, a kitchen. I had a walk-in closet, I, you know, bedroom, bathroom, every, yeah, was a full. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, yeah, once I moved out of there, like my last apartment in New York, I had a beautiful two bedroom, two bath. It had bay windows, great, was fourteen twenty five, great. And then they sold the building and the rent went up to 3,400. Oh, geez. Yeah. And I was like, and I'm going to go now because I couldn't even find a one bedroom in my neighborhood for less than 2000 by the time I left. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're struggling now. It's interesting. I was just reading an article. I think they said there are like 13,000 empty apartments because people are just like, I'm, I'm out. I, I don't want to live on top of people being here in a pandemic. Like all of that is freaking people out. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that all kinds of plays out. Well, and, and because New York was hit so profoundly with uh -huh. COVID and that, yeah, I imagine that there was a, a flight from the city, you know, people are getting out. So how is the, how is the real estate market and the rental market going to recoup itself? Um, are rents going to be really low to, to entice people to come back or what? We don't know. Well, and it's also this thing, I think we're going to start to see this in a lot of cities, you know, the commercial real estate aspect of it. Mm -hmm. If businesses can't be open, they can't afford the insane rents that were New York and LA is, you know, has gotten its own version of it. And so is San Francisco. And so I think we will start to see some sort of shift. I don't know how that will play out um, in terms of like home real estate. The market hasn't really dropped much here. Right. I was actually just reading about that, but I, I think that this, I, I want to see where that kind of plays out. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think our world will forever be changed um, after all this, you know, by the time we go back to whatever, and I'm doing bunny or air quotes right now, what normal is, it's the normal is going to be very different from the normal that we were used to before. In, and in I, commerce, in, in real estate, in, in the arts, in everything. And in a way, I think it needs to be. Because if a pandemic happens and 95% of the country can't survive as a result of that happening, that speaks to a bigger narrative that needs to change. Like there's something that is greatly wrong. Mm -hmm. And as a country that's supposed to be one of the wealthiest in the world, that shouldn't be. Right. And you shouldn't have people, you know, uh, worrying about whether they're going to be able to keep their health insurance and all of that. Exactly. We're, we're exactly. living in a, you know, a first world country. Well, we're not really anymore. You know, yeah, it's, so it's really well, our passports are useless. Yay! Yes. Well, and um, I think we can go to two places. I think we can go to Turkey 
and we can go to, there was one other place. Oh, Papua New Guinea or something. <laughs> I think you can still go to Mexico, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, I think you can go to Mexico, but yeah. yeah. But that's, but that's pretty much it. And we're persona non grata. Yeah. No one wants world. to touch us. Yeah. Which, like, uh, that's you, painful yeah, to think about. <laughs> yeah. Just don't come here. <laughs> just like you got your own thing going. You just, you take care of your shit you know, until then, bye-bye. We don't have anything to do with you, you know? So it's gonna, so here we are, it is, we are recording this on August 19th of 2020, 2020, the, the, the year that we wish that we could press Control-Alt-Delete and reboot. Yeah, We're in the midst of the Democratic National Convention and, and all this that's going on. And boy, you know, um, I really, really hope that there's a change in administration, you know, come January. I'm, I'm hoping and praying for that. At the same time, I am also, we are very concerned that that, that won't happen because of yeah. things, whether it's, whether it's um, you know, fraudulent goings on or whether um, a large number of the U.S. population is still bamboozled by the orange menace, as we call them, you know, um, and, and those people, you know, they're going to come out and force and vote. And I'm shocked. I don't here. know. I, I, I don't. I hope they're a noisy minority. I, I, I you know what? I don't know. It's like this, there's a part of me that feels like personally, we can't afford to even leave him in office until January when he's gone. Like there's so much damage that could be done in that just this short amount of time, sadly. Right. Um, but I don't have any, like I, you know, like 2016 when we were all like, there's no way, there's no way. And it happened. Then there's no way that they're going to let him get away with locking babies in cages, but it happened. Uh -huh. Oh, there's nowhere they're going to let him get away with colluding with Ukraine. Oh, but he got to Like, you just right. are like, I, I, so I just am not even trying to, to kind of go one way or the other, because I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, the, the other thing that's been very interesting to see, um, is that, uh, a lot of moderate Republicans, are joining the tent with the Democrats, the progressives, the centrists, the independents, moderate Republicans are coming in and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're supporting Biden because he's a decent guy. We know him. We've worked with him before. He's a known quantity. We're going to be okay. Um, and I, I have a friend who used to be a political operative in Washington and worked for the first Bush administration. Okay. And he told me that, uh, and he's a neocon Republican, you know, kind of along the lines of a Bill Kristol, uh, you know, those sorts of folks. He told me, um, first of all, he told me that he was a card carrying uh, uh, member of the Never Trump uh, organization. Uh, second of all, he said, remember as bleak as things can look, Generally, what happens with the American voter is that when things have swung way too far in one direction and you got somebody in office who's a real lightning storm, as this guy is, much more so than any previous president, president Democrat or Republican, he said people get tired of that kind of volatility. And whereas they may have been open to, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater back in 2016, he said, they're gonna swing, they might still be making noise, but they're gonna swing back to the middle. And that I hope so. In there, in the, the quiet of the voting process, whether it's being in a voting booth or whether it's sitting there with your mail-in ballot, in those quiet moments, you're gonna vote for something to bring us back to the middle. So I truly I, hope so. I was happy to, to, to hear that. And I do hope that he's right. Um, and because the other thing that's really uh, been really sad to me is especially on social media, we see so much division. And in mm -hmm. fact, I see things 
I, I consider myself to be a, a liberal moderate. Mm -hmm. And I see things that some of my liberal friends will espouse or state. And I think, oh my God, they sound just like mm -hmm. the other side of the coin of the wackadoodle right wing. It's the same dynamic. And yet I can't say anything because it's going to be seen as an attack. And it's, it's, and so if you have a contrasting view to what is politically correct at the moment, then the liberals will, you know, jump on you. Or if you say something that sounds remotely progressive, the right wing is going to come down and hammer you. <laughs> so it's like, you can't, you can't say any, anything. And I have decided that as far as social media is concerned, I use it to a promote the podcast. I use it to, uh, to share things that I find beautiful, inspiring, interesting, or funny, um, and leave it at that. I, I really have, um, I am coming out as a moderate, <laughs> and I'm also coming out as a person who's just not gonna comment anymore on people's stuff, because honestly, I just don't need the headache. Yeah, I've had to do a couple of breaks because I started, you know, it's one of those things where A, there's a point where I'm tired of explaining. Mm -hmm. Like if we have to keep telling you why it, you know, like just, oh gosh, but you know, the, like the black lives matter movement. Like if I have to keep explaining to you at this point, why people are saying that you already know, you don't want right. to know. Like there's like right. this point. And on the flip side, you know, when I hear people that are like, but Kamala Harris and she's the, I'm like, you know what? do your research, know what is, know what the truth is. And if you're still on that, then you just don't want to know. You just want to, so I just, I realized that everybody is a, a social media politician. Right. And a, and a, and a political pundit and, 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 and a scientist. An right. And, an, and I'm like, okay, I, I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> and so I just had to, I mean, there were a few people I muted. Mm -hmm. Some people I just had to delete. Cause I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm good on not really remaining connected to you. It's, it's really okay. And I wish you well, but we're, yeah, yeah. no. And it's not even that you have to believe what I believe. I don't right. like, I, I will never, I think that there's importance to have varying points of view. But when I start to see stuff, that's just like, this is hateful. And uh, yeah, no, well, that's, I'm thing. not. I, I have zero problem with people that I don't agree with because I have friends across the board. I have friends who are, I have friends who are, um, you know, Bernie people, libertarian people, conservative Republican <laughs> people, moderate Republican people, centrists, mm -hmm. um, everybody across the board. And, um, and it makes for interesting conversations. Yes, I agree. And I, and I have no problem with not agreeing with people. The problem I have is when people get really divisive and hurtful and mean well and, it's the and, cancel culture we've yeah. got to cancel you're canceled and and the ignorance and the, there's plenty of that to go around and like you were saying if you don't know why black lives matter matters especially now that's the end of the conversation you know it's, it's like, like at this point if it's still not landing for you yeah. what we're talking about and and look you know it's it was also really interesting and refreshing to see like friends that I went to high school with. And like one of them, she said, you know, I didn't necessarily understand it. Say, you know, six years ago, she goes, and my kids had to help me understand. And she was like, and once I got it, I was on fire. She said, and then you just start looking at all the people around you that you're like, what rock have you been living under? Right. That you still don't get it. And I'm like, yeah, well, welcome to. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my world. Well, um, but and oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, you said, but but that like I'm down to have a conversation and and talk about experiences and any way that I can. You know, I, I might literally one of my prayers is to be of support and encouragement to others. But when you are just on foolishness, I, I no, I'm not. I'm just not. Well, and especially when when someone isn't open to learning. Uh, the truth. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm all, I'm an advocate for the truth. 
yes. whatever that whatever that is and how how difficult it can be because the truth can be very very difficult and and one of the things that's been interesting is during the um the the orange menace years <laughs> the, the years of 45 after 2016 um it was interesting because when we had barack obama as president i was thinking this is great you know wow things are really opening up things are like starting to starting to progress america's kind of coming along with the world and we have a president that we're proud to send overseas and, and somebody we look up to and somebody who has incredible eloquence and presence and mm -hmm. uh, and is a leader you know um and then and so you, you, you my my tendency was to think that racism and that kind of you know divisive polar polarized ignorant points of view that those things were on the wane that was my my belief but i was wrong and the trump years have taught me that that wasn't the case it had just sort of scuttled underground and so yeah you yeah. know so, so basically during the the years of 45 um he has been that flashlight that has shown so it's because because you know the the white supremacist people who have gone underground before and got really quiet during the obama years then were emboldened under this person but and, and actually i'll say they didn't get quiet during the obama years they came out that was when they really came to the surface you start seeing stuff i'm going to be determined to make him a one-term president and comparing him to monkeys and all like that's when you started yeah. seeing it come out in a way that you're like oh because i think we all like i remember going to the first um inauguration mm -hmm. for obama and it was so beautiful like i had yeah. never seen just i mean all walks of life and we're all out there like my president is black t-shirts like just it was it was something to behold but yeah. the amount of nastiness and that tone and that climate it came out rearing, rearing its ugly head because i think unfortunately obama looked like something that was what slavery feared the entire time yeah that the tenets of slavery and the systems of slavery that have been built into the inner workings of this country that that we function on they yeah. are challenged by the fact that that man was in, in, in office. An empowered black man who is brilliant, mm -hmm. who's a leader, and who inspires people. Who's committed to his wife. Who's, yes. This is yes. the narrative. This is the, narr the anti-narrative of what we have been told that was the black man. And so to have that in the highest level in the country, yeah, yeah that brought it all to the surface. Well, and, and I did see that, but I, I think in my own mind, I was thinking, oh, it's a, it's a noisy minority. These people are always going to squawk, but there's, there's more of them. That's, mm -hmm. that was recognition for me. That was kind of the horror was the, the amount of racism and bigotry and mm -hmm. hostility. Um, I didn't, I didn't see that. And now I had blinders on you know well and, and i think like, <laughs> for 45 what i i in a weird way i was saying this when the election was happening i was like in a weird way we kind of need him to win because it will shine a light on all of the stuff of this country he's a racist he's a, so this and and it did it it showed everything that is wrong in this country right now you know like right now we're talking about the systems of you know, slavery and how it's built into it. Like, let's talk about the electoral college. It was built because of slavery, because this was the way that, you know, Southern states could have more votes. That's why it came to be. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. And I think in that way, it's causing conversations that weren't happening before. Right. Which is a positive. Which is a positive. Yeah. Now, if we can just get him out, we can start yeah. to fix some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely been a really tumultuous and painful time, but mm -hmm. I think it is also a reckoning for America to look at itself and go, wow. Yeah, um, think about the Me Too movement. Like I, when 
that video of him on the bus came out. I remember being so at the, my boyfriend at the time, um, him like having to give me a hug because I, it brought back all the crap that I dealt with in my last big corporate job. Yeah. And I had to, you know, it's been this interesting last four years where I've had to kind of like undo the psychological damage that happened around that sexual harassment. Cause I never yeah. talked about it. Nobody right. knew what I was dealing with except for the people that worked with me. Right. Nobody knew. Yeah. And all of us have a story, uh, yes. several stories. And it really was um, shocking to me to hear that out of the mouth of the guy who has the highest office in the land. And it's interesting because looking back to previous presidents, um, I may not have agreed with them, but they have, I think of, I think of W, <laughs> George W. Bush. I, I think of him as somebody who, um, okay, there's a lot of his policies I did not agree with. However, he was a, is a loving father and a devoted mm -hmm. husband. Mm -hmm. And I had a, was a good example of that. And I think was a decent person. I think, I think he genuinely felt for people. And, but with this one now, he has no empathy. No. Nothing. Every single previous president, whether Democrat or Republican, every single one of them during times of crisis or times of need, they were where they were supposed to be and they were comforting families and they were connecting with people and they were, they were speaking to us in a way that unified and made us feel a little bit better. Every single one of them. But this guy doesn't have that in his, in his DNA. And I find that appalling. It's, it's, he's physically incapable of it. And there is this, um, and hold on because I'm on my phone and my battery may die. So I'm going to go in on my computer. <laughs> okay. Um, but I do think it's a very interesting thing that the lack of empathy or the capacity for empathy and no one around him said, like, no one is like, hey, you think you should know this is not good. Like, I just think that's astounding. Well, and the thing is, when you have the opportunity to be president of the United States, regardless of what your former tendencies used to do, um, you have a chance to rise to the occasion and to really do some good. And, you know, he had that chance. And here it's so many years later and clearly there's no, there ain't nothing happening. <laughs> it's as well, and you know, I think that's the part to me that just, I find so just like, he never had empathy. He wasn't capable no. of it. No, no, no. That I couldn't stand him 35 years ago. I mean, you know, as long as I've known of his, his existence. Um, yeah, all of us. That's not, that hasn't, that's not changed. He's just gotten loonier over the years. Um, <laughs> just, but anyway, not that I want to devote any time talking about that person, but um, I do want to be optimistic and I am optimistic. And I really do think that, um, and I'm hoping, because of course, I don't want to be disappointed. So I'm sort of cautiously optimistic, I guess you could say. Yeah. But I think that most of the American people have pretty much had enough. So we'll see. You know, Dana, I, there's a part of me that sincerely hopes so. Um, but there is that part that's also like, you know, the people that put him in office were the people that he tweeted to the last time the suburban housewife that put him over the edge somehow. Yeah. We'll just I don't know. To, we'll just have to see. And the thing is that that's another unknown, a big unknown that's floating around out there and why there's a lot of tension out there is that we don't know what's happening with COVID. We don't know what's going to happen with the election. We don't know what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service, for God's sake. The thing that is as American as apple pie that we've always depended upon and that we thought the things that we thought we could rely on are now being pulled out from under us. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a freaky time, but it is also a time where um, 
again, getting back to where we started coming full circle of speaking on the lockdown and everything and about having more time to recalibrate and reboot and reevaluate and start over. Um, there is also good that comes out of this tumultuous time. Absolutely. I do believe that. And I, I, that's what I said. I think in some ways, maybe this needed to happen because it's, it's, it, it is forcing, you know, a magnifying glass on a lot of these cracks and crevices and, and, and essentially what has been a broken country and a hurting country and it's been festering up underneath. Yes. Now yeah. we're pulling the, the scab off, we're pulling off the band-aid and we're looking at it and realizing, okay, we have got to do some, a lot of things differently. Yeah, we need some antibiotics <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> in a big <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Wow, wow. Um, this has been, it, it's so funny because I was, I was not planning on venturing into the realm of, of you know, politics or all this, but you know what, Th this is what's happening now. And, and, and conversations from here is about what's happening here and now and being able to right. talk about these things in a free forum and, and, and not, um, you know, and not have to censor ourselves or, or, you know, sublimate our opinions or anything. And, you know, I, I think it's important that people dialogue. I, I, I think it's important that people hear different points of view. And, um, and I think it's also good because I, what I know of you and, and, and our relationship is that both of us come from a place of compassion. Yeah and integrity and authenticity and honesty. And so therefore we can have a conversation. And I, I you know, I, I just hope that more people can right size it, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have to see, we'll have to see. Well, you know, I think this is probably a good, a good point to, um, and I'll have to have you back and we'll talk about the, 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 the other things about what you're doing now and everything, but I think this is a good, place to to put a bow on it um and uh do you think do you have anything to add or no this was lovely and it's just good to check in with you anyway and even in the form of a podcast which i think is great and i'm really happy for you in this venture and as your friend if there's any way i can help you please let me know yeah and 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 the other thing um i mean i want to thank you for um and we're still going here. Um, I want to thank you for reminding me that I can aim and hope for better than what I thought I could manifest. You know, no settling, no settling yes. what you told me. And um, that has helped me to expand my perception of what my story is and what I'm doing with this time and energy so i, I want to thank you i, I want to thank you for that and you came along at a time when i was questioning all of that you know so i want to thank you for that and i also want to thank you for doing this episode and um, my it, pleasure and i'm 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 so grateful for you to have you and, in my life and i'm grateful for you so yes Woo! thank you my dear thank you for doing this of course, and we will talk soon, sister. We will. And that was the wise and powerful Anise Goff, someone I am honored to call my friend. Let's go out on some music today. This is Time from her album, New York Lounge Funk. Enjoy, y'all. Be well, and I'll see you on the other side. And I'll see you next week for another episode of Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. Take care, everybody.